0: This is the One Verse Podcast, where we liberate scripture from religion one verse at a time. Welcome to the One Verse Podcast. I'm your teacher, Jeremy Myers. And this is episode number 61, in which we finally move into the New Testament. We've spent the previous 60 episodes looking at the first four chapters of Genesis, which, if you remember, listening to some of those I have often said are the foundational chapters of the entire Bible. And so what I want to do sort of in the last two episodes of this year is move forward into the New Testament and just give you a brief glimpse of how Genesis, the first four chapters of Genesis, sort of form the foundation of some New Testament text. What we're going to do today is look at some of the writings of John, specifically a a few brief passages out of the Gospel of John, and then if if I get to it, a quick summary overview of the first epistle. First John. Basically, Gospel of John pulls a lot of themes out of Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and 1 John pulls uh, some themes out of Genesis 4, so that's what we'll be looking at. Hopefully, this will allow you to see both books of the Bible in a whole new light. And hey, I would love if you joined me in 2017 uh, by partnering with me and what I'm doing at redeeminggod.com. I don't know if you know this or not, but my website reaches about a quarter of a million people each and every month. And a large part of those people, a large percentage of them live in Africa and Asia. And then in uh, Europe and the United States, I have a, a pretty good percentage that are high school and college age students. And so, a lot of what I'm teaching and writing uh, through the podcast, blog, books, so on, are, are reaching people in other parts of the world, and even here in the United States, that might never have heard about God's grace, love, mercy, and forgiveness, uh, the freedom that they can have in Jesus Christ from the shackles of religion, and all these other things. Anyway, to uh, run this website, I don't know if you know this either, but it costs me about $500 every month. Um... I don't pay myself. I have a full-time job on the outside. I donate all my time and energy and all that to to, the ministry, to running the website. But uh, that $500 helps maintain the website that reaches 250,000 people a month. So you know, if you do the math on that, <laughs> for every penny spent, I'm reaching five people a month. So uh, that's a pretty good deal, I think. Here's the thing, though. I-, I do sell books, and you've probably noticed I do have advertising on my site. My book sales, my advertising do not cover all my expenses. I'm usually about $100 to $200 in the hole every single month. And so I would love if you would partner with me and help me cover some of those costs. Sort of view me as a missionary and you're supporting the work I'm doing. Um, and the thing is, I don't want to ask for your money. I hate asking for money. <laughs> um, it makes me a little nauseous to ask for money. So what I did in this last year is started this membership area of my website. And simply by joining, becoming a member, going to redeeminggod.com slash register, you can choose the monthly membership or the annual membership. Um, I only need, you know, 10 or 20 people to partner with me and help cover the additional costs of my website. And you say, well, Jeremy, what happens if you get more than 10 or 20? Well, in that case, I will create some scholarships for people around the world, uh, in Africa or Asia, who maybe can't afford it. I've had quite a few people contact me and say they would like to become a member and they just cannot afford it yet. So anyway, would you consider partnering with me in that way? I would greatly appreciate it. Uh, If if you do the math again, remember, it's like, like, what did I say, five people per penny? That means if you become a monthly member at $9 a month, you know, or the annual member at $89 a year, that money helps reach about 54,000 people every year with the message of the gospel. I call that a pretty good investment, a pretty good deal. So anyway, if if you uh, choose to do that, thank you so much. Just go to redeeminggod.com slash register to get started. All right, so as we studied through Genesis 1 through 4, I've told you on multiple occasions that these first four chapters are key to understanding, well, not just scripture, but everything. Politics, economics, relationships, uh, you know, (laughs) your work, everything in your neighbor's, why we treat some people certain ways. Um, but this is the One Verse podcast, and so I want you to understand Scripture. And that's why I began this podcast, for first 60 episodes, with a detailed look at the first four chapters of the Bible. Now, we, we've completed that study— and uh, so what I want to do is move forward in Scripture in, in this episode and the next one and sort of show you two uh, two places in the Bible where this helps. So we're going to look at the Gospel of John today. And as I've studied the Gospel of John over the years, I have noticed that the Gospel of John relies heavily on the first three chapters of Genesis. Uh, Genesis 1, 2, and 3 provide a lot of structural keys and thematic ideas, to the Gospel of John. You might want to have your Bible open as we sort of go through some of this today, um, and you'll turn to the Gospel of John, just uh, beginning right at the beginning, like it at John 1:1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the word. Now, again, John is giving us a huge clue here with opening this gospel this way. The phrase in the beginning echoes the opening line from Genesis. In the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth, right? So this is a huge clue that John is giving to us, his readers, saying, hey, you know those opening chapters of Genesis? Well, this is like that. Uh, John is showing to his readers, to us, that in Jesus, we have a new beginning. In Jesus, I think we could even say there is a new creation, all right? So right from the very beginning, the first verse of John, John is saying, all right, Get your Bible study hats on. might go back and read opening chapters of Genesis, because we're going to be referring, alluding to it a lot. And once your eyes and ears are sort of opened to this, and you're looking for it, you're alerted, we see themes from Genesis 1, 2, and 3 pop up all over the place in John. All right? Now, I could point out several right in John 1, John 2, but uh, John 3, they're all over the place as well. You know what happens in John 3? This is when Nicodemus one of the religious leaders, comes to talk to Jesus. And it's interesting, in in, in the opening verses of this chapter, it says uh, that it was night, uh, and it was dark. Uh, And and as they talked, it's interesting what they talked about. Jesus spoke to Nicodemus in verse 5 there about being born of water and spirit. And then Jesus said down there in verse 8, that the Spirit of God was like a wind that moved and blew wherever it wishes. A few verses later, this is down in uh, verse 19, Jesus tells Nicodemus that the light has come into the world, but the darkness did not comprehend it. Uh, In fact, I missed a verse back there in verse 13. In the same context, Jesus speaks about the Son of God coming down out of heaven. All right, so I went through a lot of those verses fast, and you can rewind the podcast and back it up a little bit, listen to it again, or just take notes on your own. But the alert reader, whose whose ears are tuned into Genesis, will remember that in the beginning it was dark, and there was water covering the earth, and the Spirit of God moved like a wind or a breeze over the water. And out of the darkness God brought forth light, and he separated the heavens And then land came forth from the waters. Right? All of that is in Genesis 1, 1 through 9. The earth was birthed in the night, out of water, by the Spirit, with a flash of light, and the separation of the heavens above and the heavens below, and all this was brought into being by the Word of God. So we have darkness, water, spirit, light heaven, earth, right? All of these images are found in both Genesis 1 and John 3. In fact, you know, there's another little clue, hint here. Most interestingly, when Jesus refers to himself in John 3.16, the most famous verse in the Bible, as the only begotten Son of God, the word Jesus uses there is the Greek word, is monogenes. Monogenes. All right, it, uh, it's a compound Greek word from uh, mono, which means only, and then genes, which means begotten. Genes is spelled G-E-N-E-S. Isn't that interesting? The, the Greek name for the first book of the Bible is Genesis. So that's English pronunciation, um, but uh, it's it's the same word, beginnings. Right? Genesis. So, so over and over in John 3... Jesus is pointing Nicodemus and all of us who read these words back to Genesis. Jesus is saying, something new is beginning. Genesis in me. I am the start. I am bringing a new creation. I am the new Genesis, the new beginning. A lot more we could say about John 3, but let's move on. Uh, one key feature of the Gospel of John, if you're familiar with it, is the seven signs. It centers around seven signs. It's true of the uh, book of Revelation as well. Seven seals, seven scrolls, all these sorts of things. Um, now, now I, I don't think necessarily that there are parallels between the seven signs in John and the seven days of creation. It is interesting, though, that he used the number seven. Uh, and it would have been cool if he had made parallels, if John had made parallels to the seven days of creation. Uh, the interesting thing about the seven signs, though, is there's a little disagreement among scholars over how to number those signs. Uh some think there are seven, and then there is an eighth sign, which is the resurrection of Jesus. Others say no, there's only seven. And uh two of them sort of are are are, are the two in John chapter six are, I think it's chapter six, are put together so that the seventh sign is the resurrection of Jesus. Uh Stephen Smalley argues for that, that view. And I think he's right. I think the um uh, that there are only seven signs, and the resurrection of Jesus is the seventh and final. Uh, but in, in this case, the sixth sign is the raising of Lazarus from the dead in John 11, which is uh, very similar, you go and read John 11, very similar to God giving life to Adam on day six. So the sixth sign, giving life to Lazarus, this dead person from the tomb, is 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 parallel to God giving life to Adam on day six, all right? Of course, then later in John, something very interesting happens in the seventh sign, right? As we get closer to the death and resurrection of Jesus in the Gospel of John, we first come to John 19. Now, and this would be uh, leading up to the seventh sign. Now, remember that the crucifixion of Jesus occurs on the sixth day of the week. Uh, He had to be buried before the Sabbath, before the seventh day arrived that evening. And so John 19 records some of the events that occurred on that sixth day. And uh, in John 19.5, we read that Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. So on the sixth day, Jesus is dressed in royal robes and given a crown of thorns and presented to the crowds with the word behold the man lots of imagery here from genesis it's interesting that uh, on the 6th day of creation the first man was presented to the world that's in genesis 1:26 on the 6th day god says let us make man in our image and then in verse 27 so god created man in his own image right and uh, as you may recall from previous studies, the One Verse Podcast, all the imagery and language used by God about Adam and Eve in Genesis one, two, and three is royal language, right? They were created to be royalty on the earth. Jesus gave them, or God gave them, royal tasks, royal privileges. Yeah, even when God sends them out of the garden, He gives them royal clothes to wear. And then there's this image of the thorns and the thistles. Remember that was part of the curse. So again, there's just uh, lots of parallel imagery here in John 19, when Jesus is presented to the people. But John is not done. Uh, Later in John 19, as Jesus dies on the cross, he utters some of his final words on the cross, saying, It is finished. Just sort of as an aside, (laughs) There's been so much bad, poor teaching in Christianity about what Jesus meant here when he said that. Some take it to mean that Jesus had finally finished paying for the sins of all mankind, (laughs) right? Uh, Because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, God was now appeased. Uh, Sins were now atoned for. Probably heard some sermons like that. Frankly, I've I've taught a few myself that way in the past. Uh, But that's not what Jesus meant at all. God has always freely forgiven us for all our sins, past, present, and future, and he always will. So Jesus didn't need to pay God off on the cross with his blood. No, uh, so the the words, by the way, if you want to read a little bit more about that, uh, I write some about it in my book, The Atonement of God. There's also be a book coming out this coming year that uh, will explain all of that in even greater detail. But uh, the words from Jesus from the cross, when he says, "...it is finished," It should be understood in light of creation. At the end of the creation week, after everything had been formed and filled, we read in Genesis 2-2 that God ended, or he finished, the work that he had done. His creation work was done. It was finished. And I believe that Jesus is making a parallel statement here. He finished The good work he came to do. He had completed his tasks. He saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And so he said, it is finished. And then he gave up his spirit, and he died. He rested. On on what day did Jesus rest? Well, it was the seventh day. Jesus was in the tomb on the Sabbath day. Jesus rested on the seventh day from the work which he had done. So when Jesus says, it is finished, that's John 19.30, by the way, what was he talking about? He was talking about the new creation, the new work that he had set out to do for the world. He came to show a new way, to reveal a new way, to bring light out of darkness and order to the chaos. Jesus came to inaugurate, to uh, initiate a new order for this world. He called it the kingdom of God, right? As part of the kingdom of God, he he created a new people of God to rule and reign over it all. So when Jesus says, it is finished, it's a triumphant cry of completion very similar to God looking over everything he has made and then saying it's finished, that he was done. Jesus on the cross is saying, I'm done. (laughs) Not because he was done, but because now the real party could truly begin. And do you remember what I taught you about the seventh day when God sees all that he has made and then sits down, he rests on the seventh day? I told you this isn't God stopping working. Again, that's sort of a poor teaching we sometimes get in Christianity. No, uh, when God sat down on the seventh day, he is sitting down sort of in the control room, in the throne room or whatever, of his world that he had created. And what that means is that now his work could begin in earnest. All the preparation work had been done, and now the party could truly begin. All right, the image there in Genesis 2, 1, 2, 3 is of God taking his seat at the helm of the ship, right, saying to himself, Whew, Okay, everything's been set up. Everything has been built and prepared. Everything is in its proper place. Now, let's see what this baby can do. And then God takes the world out for a spin. That's how to understand the first three verses of Genesis chapter 2. And that's what Jesus is saying here. That's how to understand Jesus' words on the cross. Uh, In fact, not just here, but especially when he rises from the dead. Uh, The resurrection of Jesus on the first day of the week. It's not Jesus saying, hey, I'm back. (laughs) Wasn't that a cool trick? (laughs) No. The, the, The resurrection of Jesus is when he says, Okay, everything is set up, everything has been built and prepared, the new creation has begun. Now, let's see what this baby can do. All right, And then Jesus takes the world out, the new world out, for a spin. And it's for all these reasons that I love John chapter 20 so much one of the most beautiful chapters, John 20, 21, two of the most beautiful chapters in the Bible. The chapter, John chapter 20 begins with the statement that it was the first day of the week, that it was early in the morning, and it was still dark. Now again, you've got your eyes and ears tuned into Genesis, and you think, oh, the first day of the week? It was dark? Right? The, the, the alert reader whose mind is thinking of Genesis and new creation. Well, you're going to think of Genesis 1-1 again, but, you, but that's sort of confusing. What? We're going back to Genesis 1? I, I thought we already passed Genesis 1. We're into Genesis 2 now. Why are we starting over? The first day of the week, it's still dark? This is Genesis 1-2, actually. <laughs> um, not Genesis 1-1. Genesis 1-2. A- and the first day of the creation, you know, it's still dark. I, what's going on? Are we starting all over again? But as we keep reading in Genesis 20, we, we read about a woman named Mary Magdalene. Like, oh, okay, okay. So this isn't exactly the first day of creation all over again. Now we have this woman who's here, and we're, we're reminded with our ears tuned to Genesis of the first woman in the Bible. But but the first woman in the Bible is named Eve. Uh, and so we realize we're not dealing with a new creation story again but instead dealing with a new account about Eve. And this time she's called Mary. Mary is the first one at the tomb. And I love it. She remains there even after Peter and John show up and then leave. (laughs) Like many women, she's the first one there and the last one left. Now, in Jesus' case, this is because she loved Jesus so much. So she's there at the tomb, and in John 20, verse 15, we read that she was standing outside the tomb, crying, and someone comes up behind her and says, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Now, the way I imagine it, I think this sort of helps make sense of the text, she doesn't know who's talking to her, and so the way I imagine it is she's sort of on her hands and knees there. At the tomb, you know, on the ground, weeping and crying. And so, you know, she probably, when someone comes up behind her, she probably looks back over her shoulder, sort of. Uh, But her ear, her eyes are blurred with tears. And besides that, she's looking back over her shoulder. It's hard when you're on the ground to sort of look up into a person's face. Uh, And so really all she sees of this man is his feet and his sandals, maybe. So she doesn't know who it is. Uh, So she assumes that he must be the gardener. Yes, the gardener. Who has come to spend time with a woman in the garden? Very much like another gardener, right? Who came walking in the Garden of Eden during the cool of the day so many years before because he wanted to go on a walk. You know, there, in Genesis 3, 8, and 9, God comes walking in the garden in the cool of the day, seeking out Adam and Eve, crying out, where are you? Right? He wants to go on a walk with them. And now another gardener has come to another woman in another garden and says, whom are you seeking? Right? So... She answers, and then he calls her by her name, Mary. <laughs> and when he does so, she recognizes him for who he is, as Jesus, her rabbi, her teacher, her Messiah. Again, in Genesis, it was Adam, the first man, who gave a name to Eve, the first woman. But, but there, it was in an attempt to control and dominate her. We talked about that. But here, Jesus calls Mary by her name, As a way of revealing himself to her and letting her know that he loves her and will never leave or forsake her. Uh, But John chapter 20 isn't done yet. In verse 19, we read that it is now the evening of the first day. And once again, we're reminded of Genesis and the repeated statement it was evening and it was morning, right? Uh, And while the first day of creation in Genesis 1 sort of began in a sinister way with darkness and deep waters, remember, to home, covering the earth, uh, the evenings and mornings of creation brought light, order, and peace. And, And so it's beautiful to see that in the evening of the first day, peace to you are the first words Jesus speaks to his disciples. And then in the following verses, verses 20 and 21, Jesus says he's going to send them out into the world. Why? Well, we know from other scriptures that the reason he sent them out is so that they could expand the borders of his kingdom, so that they could spread the rule and reign of God upon the earth. Again, going back to Genesis, this is the almost nearly identical command that God gave to Adam and Eve in the garden. He had placed this garden in the east. It didn't cover the whole earth. It was a small little oasis upon the face of the earth. And then he had told Adam and Eve to expand the borders of the garden, to tend and work the earth so that the rule and reign of God could cover the entire earth. Right? And to accomplish this task, moving forward into Genesis 2, sort of the second creation account, just providing a little more detail even, in verse 7, we read that God breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life and Adam became a living being. Here in John 20, 22, we read that Jesus breathed on them, saying, receive the Holy Spirit. What's the symbolism here? It's beautiful. They're the new Adam, the new emissaries of God on earth, the new royal ambassadors and holy priesthood who were to go out in the name of God and expand the rule and reign of God on earth. Very similar imagery in Acts 2 at Pentecost, by the way when the Holy Spirit comes like a mighty wind upon the church on the day of Pentecost. Look, uh, we, we could look at similar themes all over the place in the Gospel of John. I just wanted to point out those few. just a few beautiful ones from John 3 and 19 and 20. Uh, some of them come from John, uh, Genesis 1 and 2 and 3. Uh, Genesis 4, though, let's move forward into First John. Genesis 4 provides structural keys and thematic ideas for, for John's first letter, the first epistle of John. And I would even go to so far as to say that uh, in some ways first John is a commentary of sorts, maybe like a sermon on Genesis chapter 4. Right, for example, uh, John starts his letter by referencing the beginning and uh, you know just like he did with his gospel uh, and then also talks about light and darkness. That's 1 John 1, 1 and 5. So the themes of light and darkness and the beginning uh, are, are introduced right here at, at the first opening verses of 1 John, and then they're also common themes throughout the entire letter. They keep popping back up, light and darkness, right, and, and beginning. Uh, nevertheless, although these themes do seem to point back to Genesis 1— The discussion about walking in the light and walking in fellowship, also common phrases found in 1 John, I believe that they seem to point us towards the themes in Genesis 4, especially, about how humans were to live in fellowship with God and one another, but it all got messed up by sin. Now again, we could go verse by verse through 1 John, maybe I'll do that someday, showing you how... The ideas in 1 John connect with Genesis. Uh, But for now, let's just look at a few brief themes from 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3 begins with this discussion about how God loved us as his children. Again, uh, this this is very similar to Genesis, uh, but but the real excitement begins in 1 John 3, verses 4 through 9, where John starts talking about sin and the devil. Uh, His warning here is very uh, reminiscent of the warning that God gave to Cain in Genesis 4-7. Remember, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you, right? But you must rule over it. You must control it. Sort of similar themes and ideas that John brings up here in verses 4-9. through But then in verse 11, we have this common refrain about how things were from the beginning. Once again, I I believe John is pointing the reader back to Genesis. He's reminding us that from the beginning, we were built for relationships. Do you remember as we talked about that? That we were built for love. So now we have this contrast in 1 John 3. We have sin and devil contrasted with love and God. And what's the perfect example of this? What does John do? He goes back to the example of Cain and Abel. Obviously, this isn't surprising. He's been hinting at and pointing back to Genesis all the way through. Uh, He uses Cain, of course, as the negative example, as the opposite of love. Uh, Cain did not love his brother, John writes. To the contrary, he hated his brother. And this hate led to sin, which is when he murdered his brother, Abel. All right? Remember, just as in Genesis 4, John equates sin with murder especially the murder of brother against brother, fratricide, which is really what all violence, what all murder, what all human violence truly is. We don't have enemies. We have brothers that we engage in violence against. Uh, Anyway, John John goes on to write that we do not have to live the same way because we have passed out of the realm of death and into the realm of life. We have passed out of the realm of murderous hate and into the realm of of self-giving love. So therefore, uh, you know what does God's life look like in a person who's living it? It doesn't look like Cain. John says, "No. It, instead, it looks like Jesus." This is the eternal life, the life of love. This sort of life never leads to sin, to violence, uh, to the murder of brother against brother, to to scapegoating, violence of blaming others, blaming God. No, uh, this sort of life leads only to love. And John provides a little clarification on that in verse, in chapter 5, verses 16 and 17, uh, the, you know, discussion about the sin that leads to death. But, uh, you know, I think you get the overall big picture about 1 John. Again, we could we could go into so much detail, but I, I won't. It's too much to cover, and, too, and we just don't have enough time. We're running out of time. Um, proper understanding of Genesis 4 helps us understand 1 John. So that's really all I have for you, uh, this week, we're going to move into the book of Revelation next week. Uh, and I'm saving that for next for a whole episode because it's such a giant topic. Um, in, in next week's episode, we will be the last one for the year. And I will also try to give you a basic framework for understanding the last book of the Bible, as well as some insights into the message that the book of Revelation contains. But I hope you do see how understanding Genesis 1, 2, 3, and 4— helps us understand other places of the Bible and helps us gain new insights into it and what the those other authors were intending to say and intending to teach by what they wrote. So we'll be seeing a lot more of this, not just in next week's episode when we look at the book of Revelation, but uh, down the road in the future as well. So uh, join us next week with the final episode of the year when we look at the book of Revelation. Hey, between now and then, would you please consider partnering with me on redeeminggod.com? So that I can continue putting out these podcasts, writing my books, and uh, publishing my blog posts. These things not only help you, but they also help free people all around the world from the shackles of religion. Learn about God's love and grace, some of them for the very first time. Breaks my heart some of the emails I get from all around the world. People who feel that God cannot love them, cannot forgive them because of what they've done sometimes even what their pastor has told them. Oh, God can't forgive you. And it's so sad. And uh, redeeminggod.com is one place that they come to for hope and healing, understanding grace and forgiveness. And uh, you can help make that happen. Help reach people all around the world by becoming a member of redeeminggod.com. You know, I'm not asking for money. I I want uh, to be able to give something back to you when you give to me. And so when you become a member at redeeminggod.com slash register, uh, that helps support the ministry, my mission around the world, and spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. And uh, by the way, if you join before December 24th, you don't have much time left depending on when you listen to this episode. If you join before December 24th, that makes you eligible to possibly win a a free one-year gift membership to the site. So if you win, I'll just refund your, your, your fees, your, your, what you paid for the year. Uh, anyway, just go to redeeminggod.com slash register and partner with me today. Thank you so much. The uh, concluding line to this week's episode was suggested on Facebook by Wickus Hendricks. Until next time, God bless.